0: Uh, If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 1, uh, and also John chapter 20. So you'll want to go ahead and stick a finger in John 20 uh, as we're reading uh, God's Word together. Um, We are, uh, in case this isn't obvious to you, we're beginning a new series uh, this morning in the Gospel of John. Um, my, My hope is, my intent is... Uh, This will not be uh, the same kind of uh, time frame that Luke took, um, if you were here then, uh, but we'll move a little more quickly through John's Gospel. Uh, John 1, beginning in verse 1, uh, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word, Um, so if you would and you're able, would you please stand as we give our attention to the readings of God's Holy Word. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And then again, John chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 26, just to kind of catch the context. Eight days later, his disciples, and this is after the resurrection, were inside again. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray as we. give our attention to the truth of god's word let's pray and ask for the holy spirit's help Uh, we pray O holy spirit that you would be at work Uh, you have recorded these words for us Uh, you have preserved them for us would you now so work in them and through them and by them uh, that we are stirred up to deeper and stronger faith in christ for it's in his name that we ask it amen uh, some of you may remember uh, the TV show, To Tell the Truth. Others of you, even if you don't remember it, you actually are more familiar with it than you might realize. But basically, the, the show, there was a host. There were three people pretending to be somebody, um, and that could have been kind of anybody. And then there were four contestants, if you will, who asked questions of the three uh, potential would-be-somebody's. Uh, to try to figure out is it number one or is it number two or is it number three? Which one is it? And at the end of the show, at the end of the thing, each of the four contestants would make their guess. And then the host would say, and this is the part you're familiar with, even if you've never seen the show, will the real so-and-so please stand up? In some ways, we think that Jesus becomes a contestant on To Tell the Truth. In some ways, it seems like he becomes a contestant. He's one of people up there, and and you kind of want to say, well, will the real Jesus please stand up? You hear this from time to time, right? You hear when people say things like, well, I just don't think Jesus would ever fill in the blank. Or, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. He would certainly do this. And we come up with all sorts of ways that that we're convinced this is who Jesus would be and how Jesus would behave and what Jesus would do. And in some ways, you kind of want to go, well, if, if all of these are options, would the real Jesus please stand up? That's actually why John wrote the gospel. He just told us that in chapter 20. Because he wants the real Jesus to please stand up so that we can see him. So that we can behold him. And and you'll notice that word behold is going to become a big deal in the rest of chapter 1. John writes his gospel expressly to have the real Jesus stand up so that we can see him and know him. But he actually wants more than that. He doesn't want us to just be able to see him, to behold him, to recognize him, to to pick him out of a lineup. He actually wants us to trust in him, to believe in him, and by believing, have life in his name. John wants us to behold and believe. That's the theme of his whole gospel. That's the aim, the purpose, the intent of the whole gospel itself. And he begins to unfold that already in the prologue, these first 18 verses. You notice he's really introducing his gospel. It wouldn't surprise me one bit to find out that John wrote this, these 18 verses, this, this prologue, after he'd written the rest of the gospel. Now, we don't know. We don't have that information. But I frequently write sermon introductions after I've written the sermon because you kind of want the introduction to make sense in light of the sermon. What's the point of an introduction that goes one way and a sermon that goes somewhere completely different? So it wouldn't surprise me in the least to find John the Apostle. This is is that John. This isn't John the Baptist who's mentioned by name in this passage. Uh, It's John the Apostle. Who writes this gospel? It wouldn't surprise me in the least to find that he writes, he kind of writes his gospel and then comes back with this prologue, this extended introduction, if you will. And yet, even in the introduction, he gives us hooks, ways to sort of recognize, things to sort of hang on to as we begin to recognize. Who is the real Jesus? Will the real Jesus please stand up? So, what does he do? How does John begin to unfold that purpose in these verses? First, I want you to see well, he wants us to see the word before the world. If you're going to tell a story of someone, you're going to recount a a family history, you're going to write a biography. I assume you would start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. (laughs) But the problem is which beginning? Because Mark begins his gospel. Now, let me change that word. Mark starts his gospel at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Mark's in a hurry. I mean, you're hardly into his gospel before Jesus is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew and Luke start their gospel at the beginning of Jesus's earthly life. There's a there's genealogies, there's Mary and Joseph, there's a manger, there's magi, kings, whatever, right? He goes back to John chooses a different beginning. John chooses the same beginning as Genesis. In the beginning. And already you're like, well, hang on a second. I know those three words. I've heard those three words before. Or I will hear them Tuesday morning when I come to women's Bible study. Or Wednesday night when I come to women's Bible study. There you go. Another plug. You like that? Um, John starts with creation. He starts with the language of, of Genesis. He starts with the same three words that the Bible begins with. And so he reaches back to that beginning. Except here's the problem. We have a grammar limitation problem. Beginning and before are chronology words. Right? Those are words that have to do with time. They communicate time. If you don't have time, you don't have before or beginning. That's where John actually takes us. Did you notice the language of verses 1 and 2? In the beginning already was the Word. When the beginning began to begin, the Word was already there. So before the beginning. The word already was. And so John wants us to know, and, and by the way, it becomes clear later in the passage and it becomes even clearer still throughout his, his gospel that this word is none other than Jesus. That, that, that will become clearer even if it's not right off the bat. But John wants us to see that the word is eternal. This word has existed long before the beginning began. Long before creation was. And in fact, not only was he not, not only was the word in the beginning, but he was with God in the beginning. And and you have to recognize that John makes a distinction there. Um, the word with is really sort of in front of. It's kind of before the face of. It's got that sort of face-to-face imagery, that, that the preposition that, that John uses there. That the the word, not only was he already there, but he was already sort of face-to-face with God. And you can see he's beginning to create the distinction between the Father and the Son because not only was the word with god but the word was god also verse 1 i know we our brains start to cramp right there right and already you know you're one verse in and you're going to hold on a second so there's there's a person who exists at the beginning with God, but who is, is God. How can you be both with God and God at the same time? And you have to, and, and one verse isn't going to do it, but you have to recognize the Trinity here. You have to recognize what our shorter catechism does with who is God, right? Three persons and one God, the same in substance, equal in, in power and glory. Now, this is where, um, incidentally, this is where the Jehovah's Witness come, Witnesses come to your house. Uh, here's your conversation, right? This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses um, uh, admit sort of their theology and their Greek, their understanding of, of just Greek language uh, is wrong. Uh, we won't get too terribly bogged down into it, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, all, all they're doing is um, rehashing a, a view of Jesus that was condemned in the Council of Nicaea, our Nicene Creed, in 325. That Jesus is divine, but not a deity. That he was a man who became like God, but he isn't actually God himself. And part of their argument is Greek language-based. If you're interested, we can have that conversation at another time. But they basically are arguing, well, there's, he's, he's not really God, he's a God is kind of their argument. And the reality is, the way the Greek is written, that's just not a requirement. And it's clear from the rest of Scripture that, that the Bible claims Jesus is God Himself and has been. You see, part of what John's doing is giving us a picture of who Jesus is. He's connecting... Jesus to God, he's connecting the father and the son, but he's also separating them into the father and the son. He's connecting and separating in a sense for the word to be with God, meaning the father for the son to be with the father. He has to be a different person, but he's not a different God. He's not another God. And so before the beginning, the Word already was because the Word was God and the Word was with God. And now you can see why we chose the Nicene Creed. And if you read the Chalcedonian Creed, you'll know why I really wanted to choose that uh, for our affirmation of faith. But there's more because John then goes on to remind us that not only was the son with the father in the beginning but it's the son who created it was the son who is the agent of uh, all that is everything verse 3 that was made through everything was made through him and anything that is was not through him isn't doesn't exist the point is that he is the creator of Heaven and earth, the agent. He's the word by which heaven and earth came into existence. But he's more than that, because again, in verse 4 and 5, Jesus is both light and life. He's light that shines in the darkness, and he gives life to men. And of course, that makes sense, because if he's the creator, then he created the sun, he created light. He's the reason light exists and so in Him light is. And if He's the Creator, then He created mankind and animals and creatures and so in Him life exists. He's the source of our life because He's our Creator. He's light because He's created light. You ever you ever, you ever ask somebody a question, did you mean this or that? And the answer comes back Yes. It can be frustrating, can't it? The reality is, I think that's part of what John's doing here. Because he knows where the gospel's going. Now, he knows what he's written so far, and so far he's only written about the beginning of the beginning. Right? When the beginning began to begin. He's talking about creation. And so, life and light are referring to creation But he also knows where he's headed. He knows why he's written what he's written. And so it's not just physical life, but spiritual life that's bound up in the word. And he's he's giving us a glimpse. He's he's sort of giving us these hooks. Wait a minute. Jesus is going to call himself the light of the world. I've heard this before. Oh, yeah. All the way back in the beginning of the gospel. Jesus is going to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Wait a minute, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, all the way back at the beginning of the gospel. And so throughout the gospel, Jesus and John the apostle, the author and John the Baptist, who's mentioned in verses six through eight, and then again in verse 15 are all pointing to Jesus, not just as creator, but as savior. And so John wants you to behold Jesus as God himself, as the son of the eternal son of God, as the creator and redeemer of his people. But if he's going to bring salvation, you have to ask from what? Well, that's the second thing John wants us to see the word before the world. But then secondly, the word into the world. Did you notice Verse five, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The Greek word used there can mean overcome. But if you use um, a different translation, if you use the New King James, for example, the darkness did not comprehend it. The New American Standard says didn't grasp it. And I think that's the point here. It's not that that the light the darkness was was overtaken by the light but the light the darkness didn't understand it didn't comprehend it didn't recognize it didn't affirm it in other words jesus came into the world jesus the creator came into the world he created and the world didn't recognize him as creator it's it's romans 1 Right? We, we look around and we see creation and we're supposed to go, where did these trees come from? Where did this bug come from? Where did this leaf come? Where did this duck-billed platypus come from? Right? It's supposed to make you think there's, there's got to be someone, there's got to be some reason for their existence And the only reasonable explanation is that there is some creator, some eternal and powerful creator who brought them into existence. And yet man in his unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And so John is simply echoing what Paul will write later in Romans 1. And you notice Jesus the Word actually comes into the world. For example, verse 10, He was in the world. The world was made through Him and didn't know Him. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word has come into the world and yet the world rejects Him. Incidentally, the way John uses this word world really throughout his Gospel, it's not so much the globe it's kind of the created order even in its sinfulness, even in its rebellion, even in its brokenness. You ever had a bunch of people over? I don't know. You've you've had a party at your house. You've had a bunch of friends over. You've thrown sort of an open invitation. Y'all come on, we'll have, you know, we'll eat some good food, we'll hang out, we'll play games, we'll sing, we'll dance. We'll do whatever we do when you get a bunch of people together. But there's that one person. Who just knows how to suck the life out of a room. Who's just a drain. Who's just difficult to be around. You know, sort of the eternal Debbie Downer just constantly wants to just make the place feel... You know, we're, we're singing, we're dancing, we're eating all this great food, we're doing all this wonderful fun stuff, and you're here to make it a drag. When when that person's in the room, do you find yourself kind of going, I think I need to be in a different room all of a sudden. Like I just kind of want to migrate somewhere else and not be where that is. Imagine being Jesus. The eternal, sinless, creator, son of God coming into the world that has already rejected him. That's what he did when he took on the flesh, took on flesh, when he became a man, when he added something he hadn't had before for that matter. Right? The true light, which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world didn't know him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see the word coming into the world, but it's not the world he made because it's now broken it's now guilty of cosmic treason his creator's creation has rebelled against him so that when jesus takes on flesh it's not simply that he's becoming a man but that he's becoming like us rebels as we are jesus Became a man. He entered into his creation. He became flesh just like his creatures. He would subject himself to relationships with difficult people. He would subject himself to scraping his knee as a child. He would subject himself to neighbors who brushed him off. Like, that's Jesus. We know this guy. He's just that carpenter dude down the street, right? He, he runs the carpentry business downtown. He's not anybody special, He would subject himself to the sorrow of loss and weep at a graveside. He would even yield himself to death on a cross. So John shows us who is this Christ. Who is this word? He's the eternal son of God who becomes man and enters into our condition. He brings the glory of God incarnate in the Son. But why? The Word before the world, the Word into the world, and finally the Word for the world. Remember, John wants us to behold Jesus so that we might believe in Him. He wants us to see who Jesus is So then he he now turns his attention, as it were, to the work from the person of Christ to the work of Christ, to the reason for the incarnation at all. And it just so happens that John knows how to interact with the world he lives in. That's one of the difficult spots for believers, isn't it? How do we we live in this world and yet not be of the world? How do we engage the world around us and know and understand the the mindset and thinking and philosophy of the, the world around us in such a way that we can actually knowledgeably and winsomely interact with it? That's exactly what John does here. He knows his Hebrew history. He knows his Greek philosophy and he blends them together because Greek philosophy was well. We need some sort of explanation for how everything holds itself together, and so they use the word, word, logos, word or reason, and they basically use that as this is this is sort of the summary version. This is how we explain how everything came to be and holds together and and how sort of everything, the, the created order holds itself up. And so John says, I'm going to take that word and show you who that is. I'm going to take your philosophy. Well, it's, it's the logos, the word. That's who holds all of this stuff together. And John goes, you're right. Here he is. Let me introduce you to him. Let me show you how the thing you've been looking for is found in the God of Hebrew history and has been there all along. And so he takes this word logos and keeps referring to Christ as the word, the one in whom all things hold together. In other words, Jesus is the one who makes worldview and philosophy make sense. But that's not John's biggest fish to fry. That's not his main focus. He has a, a more important purpose for writing. And the question is, why the incarnation? Or St. Saint Saint Anselm's question, why the God-man? Well, what do words do? Some of you are visual people. Pictures tell a picture's worth a thousand words, whatever it is. Some of you would rather use a thousand words. Some of you would rather paint the picture and use a thousand words. What do words do? Don't they simply reveal things that Otherwise can't be seen. Otherwise can't be known. Right? If if you don't introduce yourself to someone, they can't know your name. If you don't speak your mind, if you don't say what you're thinking, people can't know what you're thinking. If you've got things going on in your head, then those things remain a secret. They remain a mystery to everyone around you unless you speak. That's in part how Jesus is the word. Because did you notice verse 18? No one has seen God. The only God who is at the father's side. He's made him known. Jesus took on flesh so that we might see God. So that he might make the father known to us. So that he might accomplish our salvation as God in the flesh. Here's the other thing. That actually suggests that the arrival of Jesus on the earth wasn't a last minute decision. It wasn't a panic. It wasn't, oh no, what am I going to do? Things have gotten messed up. i got to react and figure out a problem solve solution to all of this. It was in the mind of God from before the foundation of the world to send his son To accomplish our salvation. Before everything went awry. Genesis 3. Jesus was already. The plan of salvation. For God's people. The darkness of the created order. Has rejected Jesus. And he is the only way. Of deliverance. He alone brings light and life. To the world. Darkened and deadened by sin. But did you notice the hope of verse 12? Yes, the world has rejected him. Yes, the world hasn't known him. He came to his own and his own people. Verse 11, didn't receive him. However, that's not true of everyone. Because in verse 12, we're told those who did receive him, those who did embrace him, those who do behold and believe, actually are given the right to call God father, to call the son, their elder brother. They receive the right, the gift of life in a new family. They become the children of God. In other words, the arrival of the word into the world for the world means that there is deliverance from death to life, from darkness to light, from the world to the kingdom of God. The arrival of the word means that there is salvation. The word who was before the world came into the world for the world's deliverance. Let me make a couple of applications uh, and one uh, comparison, uh, if you will. Uh, The comparison first, um, if you've ever spent time around musicals, Broadway plays, when before the curtain goes up, the orchestra starts, and they play a song, they play the overture, the prologue, depending on which play, how they've entitled it, and that overture contains snippets of the songs that you're going to hear in the play, right? It goes from a little bit of feed the birds and kind of slides into a spoonful of sugar before giving you just a hint of chim-chim-churri. And only then do you get supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's all in one song. So that as you come later to the play, you're like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. I've heard this little bit of a theme somewhere. Oh, Yeah. In the song, the orchestra played before the cur- curtain went up. That's the prologue. That's these verses of John's gospel. You just heard snippets of a spoonful of sugar, chim chim cheree, feed the birds. Words and concepts like light and life and world and rebirth. These are all central to everything John's going to write for the rest of the gospel. You just literally heard that orchestral overture so that when you get to chapter three and you see born again, you're hold on a second. This idea of rebirth sounds familiar when you get to Jesus as the light of the world. Wait a minute. This sounds familiar. When you get to Jesus as the life that sounds familiar, these are all themes. You just heard the themes of John's gospel. Second. Uh, application can I simply add Jesus into the mix like okay I get it the Bible saying Jesus is the way of salvation I'll throw him into the pot with all the other potential ways of salvation right I mean any of them will do they're all about the same they're all going to get you the same way and and you choose yours and everything's fine except for one little problem there's a word in verse 14 And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The Word there carries the idea of uniqueness. Not just only in the sense of He doesn't have brothers. Only in the sense that He is unique. And for that matter, He's unique among all the other ways. You do realize terms like very unique, most unique, um, th- th- that's redundant, right? You, you do realize- Unique means it's the only one. And so it never needs a qualifier. You don't need to sort of describe something as more unique because there's, there's, there's only one. And if there's only one, it can't be more than that, right? That's part of the point. John's already giving you a glimpse that there is no other name given to men under heaven by which we might be saved. John doesn't present Jesus as a way of salvation, but as the way of salvation, trust in him and live third along sort of similar lines. Um, what are Jesus' limitations? I think sometimes we, even as Christians, think to ourselves, well, you know, this is all fine and good, but sooner or later, I'm going to have to do something else. I'm going to need to add. I'm not going to be able to find enough. But did you notice the word in verse 16? For from His almost enoughness, from His just about there-ness, now, from his fullness, you will find in Christ your all in all. You will find in Christ all grace, all power, all authority, and you'll get to watch that play out in John's gospel as he exercises his power and authority and his grace over the effects of sin. Christ can be trusted because he has all fullness. In other words, John has already presented Jesus as the only way of salvation. And that salvation is complete and full in him. Trust in Jesus and him alone for your salvation. Let's pray together.